Thomas Jefferson once said, cultivators of the earth are the most valuable citizens. They're the most vigorous, the most independent, the most virtuous, and they are tied to their country and wedded to its liberty in interests by the most lasting bonds. Awesome. An updated report from the USDA's Economic Research Service provides important details around the makeup of the roughly 2 million American farmers who brave the elements each year to cultivate the fields and produce the food and fiber that fuels our world. The report confirms that family farms are in fact the heart of rural America, just as Jefferson would have envisioned it. Welcome to Groundwork. This is the podcast where we dig into all things farm policy. I'm your host, Tom Sell. So America's diverse family farms shows that 98% of farms are in fact family enterprises and what they define as large family farms account for nearly half of the production. Understanding this data about America's family farms is vital. Data can be easily misinterpreted and even skewed, as we know, and in recent years, skewing and deliberately misrepresenting this particular set of data around the structure of U.S. farms has been, well, the modus operandi of certain farm policy critics like EWG and AEI. Our guest today brings a great perspective and really from the ground up knowledge to this topic. He is Kevin Van Trump, president and founder of Farm Direction and author of the Van Trump Report. Kevin has his finger on the pulse of what is driving rural America and what is driving the farmers who produce the bounty we are blessed with each year. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Yeah, Tom, I appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and, and uh, where you come from and, and what you do. Grew up in a small rural town out uh, about 30, 40 miles south of Kansas City. Grew up working on farms. My grandpa had a farm, uh, helped him a lot, uh, helped a lot of the local folks, uh, you know, through hay. A lot of the uh, regular things small town boys did back in the uh, you know, 70s, 80s. And I went to work, uh, went to work for the NFL after college, uh, worked there for a brief time. My wife ends up getting kind of her dream job in Chicago. I go there, I land uh, in Chicago and a bunch of my friends in the NFL said I needed to get into the trading business. And, you know, being from a small rural town, I really didn't know much about trading or any type of big city finance. And so I go there and they get me an interview with some people and they say, man, you're a big, tall guy. I was about six, four and about, I was probably about three fifty at the time two three ninety somewhere in that place. They're like, damn, you, you'd like to, uh, <laughs> you, everybody can see you in the exchange. They'll be able to see you really so we could get orders off. So that, yeah. So that's kind of how I get my start and, uh, meet a lot of good folks, meet a lot of good people. It teach me a lot about uh, you know, what's happening in the grain world, uh, started off over at the Merck and went to the Chicago board of trade and met a lot of people over there, traded corn, beans, and wheat, and, uh, met a lot of large traders. And I take that info kind of back home and talk to a lot of the local farmers and, and people and families I grew up with and, and, and just tried to make heads or tails out of some of the lingo, maybe that they didn't quite, uh, understand or, or, you know, really able to, uh, kind of bridge that gap for them. So I, I was able to kind of do that. And I started putting my thoughts down uh, in a journal and, and it kind of started circulating and spreading amongst some of the uh, bigger hedge fund people on the East Coast and on the West Coast. And when the RFS took off and ethanol really uh, became a mainstay, we, we really started to boom. So, yeah, like you said, I go out and talk to lots and lots of uh, people in the ag world and in the, in the investment world. So I, I kind of have both both uh, views. I love it. That's an all-American story. And, and obviously you've been in a place where you've seen uh, all sides of the the risk profile that the, the farmers face. 
So, Kevin, today I want to talk to you just about this, this uh, America's Diverse Family Farms report. And it, we should really just start with this simple fact. So ERS defines a farm as any place that during a given year produced and sold or normally would have produced and sold at least $1,000 of agricultural products. So my first question to you is, uh, Kevin, is, is that really a farm, uh, $1,000 in agricultural products? So let's just unpack that definition a little bit. Yeah, I think, you know, I guess if you want to really look at like a Webster's Dictionary of a farm, I guess I would say they could be, be correct. I mean, an area of land, or, you know, where buildings are used for growing crops or animals. But I, I also feel I have a ton of friends um, who have what I call hobby farms, uh, yeah. whether they were traders, investors. I got friends, you know, that own other businesses. But, you know, they may have 20 acres, 30 acres, 40 acres, and it's called a hobby farm. They like their kids to do the chores on the farm and they have a good time with it and things of that nature. Yeah. I, you know, that's not production agriculture. That's not what's putting food on the table for Americans and, uh, or, or, you know, many of the things that a lot of people want to believe. So by that definition, there are 2,015,360 farms in the United States operating today. Again, that's the definition of someone uh, or an entity that, that sells a thousand dollars or would normally sell. 90% of those market less than $350,000 worth of goods uh, in a year. The remaining 10% are classified as medium or large uh, farms, most of those being family farms, with more than $350,000 in, in, uh, in gross farm income. So would that be a better definition, those roughly 200,000, 10% uh, that are marketing over 350,000? Would that be maybe a better definition of maybe a farm that is fully invested or, or, or full-time or, or fully engaged in the enterprise of farming? Oh yeah, for sure. I think that's definitely what we see. I mean, you know, from our perspective, it's generally, I mean, we had guys and families at the show, seven generations, uh, you know, we get a lot of four or five generation family farms that is what we deal with that are doing pretty heavy production uh, for the United States or for the exports uh, or, or whatever, maybe full time, uh, you know, their parents, their, their great, great grandparents may have homesteaded the land and, uh, and it's continued to pass, pass along. And those uh, family farms are, are the ones that are really, like you said, have a lot of the risk and are doing the majority of all the production. So yes, those are who we classify as production agriculture farms. That's great. And so, and even of this 10%, only about 2% are what would be classified in this category as non-family farms, meaning uh, where the principal operator or people related to the principal operator don't own a majority of the business. But tell me, Kim, from your experience, do you see a lot of what really look like family enterprises, but maybe it's it's across multiple families uh, set up in an LLC or, or some entity like that. Is that who we're talking about on these non-family farms? Or, or tell me this, do you actually see major corporations, publicly traded corporations and, and the like, actually engaged in, in the farming practice or putting themselves and their capital at risk uh, on farms? How would you classify that kind of non-family farm category? No, I think you're, you're dead right. I mean, I, I guess I shouldn't, I shouldn't laugh at, I have friends that are people that, uh, especially my wife volunteers at the Ronald McDonald house and children's mercy and things. And we'll have people that didn't grow up in rural America. A lot of times come and, and we'll have conversations and they said, you know, they just don't want to 
they don't want to buy the food from these big corporate farms and these big corporate farms. I said, can you tell me and identify who those people are? Because I've yet to come across these people. I, I can't find them anywhere in my entire lifetime. I, mean, I threw hay for families when I was young. I work for people now and help advise. And most all of them, just like you said, are mostly farm families who may have set their because the prices have gone up so dramatically and the production and the yields have gone up so dramatically, they're dealing in millions of dollars. So they have to have an entity that's as, as classified as a business and run it as a business. They can't just run it as a hobby when you're starting to deal with this type of scale. So, no, we don't know of any. Uh, and the people I do know, and I do know this, there are some hedge funds and there are other uh, pension funds who have bought and purchased land and they call me regularly and ask me, who are the best farmers or the best stewards of the land? We would love them to farm our, our ground for us. They are just simply holding it as an entity that they may want to, uh, you know, 20 to 30 years out, see it as more valuable than maybe having all their money in the stock market or something like that. But they always, almost every single time, allow a local farmer to come in and farm that ground form in some type of crop sharing or some type of rental type of agreement. So it is our, our local rural farmers that are farming the ground. So that is absolutely consistent with, with my experience. And of course, USDA classifies farmers, not necessarily by who owns the land, but by who's at risk, who's at risk in the crop. And uh, when you get out into rural America, most of the land is, is rented. Um, most of the farm families that are out there, they, they will own a portion of their land, but then they rent uh, most of that ground, which has been passed down through generations and, and, and families. Um, and the way that this USDA definition goes is, is by who is at risk on the farm. If it's a cash rent situation, obviously the farmer that cash rents is 100% at risk. On the, on the production of that crop. If it's a share rent situation, you might have some landlords uh, that, that are at risk. Uh, if say it's a 25-75 split on, on, uh, on the costs and the proceeds uh, from that crop. In fact, that's probably goes to uh, this question of, you know, who are these people that make up the small farms? The 90% of farms that produce less than 20% of the overall product. Uh, when we look at that category of, of who would be in the small farms, you already mentioned some of your buddies from Chicago that have little ranchettes or, or little hobby farms. Um, I think the landlord would be another uh, good example, maybe someone who's received some land uh, uh, from their family uh, states and, and have some small share. Who, who else might be in that category of of uh of small farms the majority of what we see are um you know basically landowners that the the farms had stayed in the family they no longer want to farm it and then they turn it over and put it up for a lease or a tough a crop sharing type of program yeah. uh and we just don't see that many hands-on small farms or farmers that are doing production type agriculture it's like i said it's either a hobby farmer or the people own the land as a longer term investment or a legacy type play to leave to their kids and they're allowing other farmers in the area to farm it yeah i think that's a great answer i guess the one other area that i see uh quite a lot of are, are the smaller farms where uh maybe the principal operator also has a job in town maybe at the local gm factory or or uh, or some other manufacturing facility, and then they they farm on the 
in the evenings and on the weekends uh, during the summer. Do you see quite a bit of that still? Oh, uh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I totally agree with Tom. I have uh, one of my good friends. He's a uh, he was a postmaster at the post office, and he farms about 300 acres on the side. And I got a yeah. buddy, just like you said, works at the Ford plant, and they got a 100-acre farm. And, uh, you know, nobody I – don't, I don't know many that are have full-time jobs that are doing much over two, 300 acres. Most of them are more than that. 40 acres to 150 acres, you know, in that smaller range and, and doing a little on the side and having fun with it and just love being outside and, and, uh, and, you know, feeling good about themselves and what they can produce. So, yeah. Yeah. And even some of those, just given, given these thresholds in the USDA report, if, if a medium or, or large farm is greater than $350,000 in gross income, I mean, you can get there pretty fast, can't you? If, if you're raising corn at, at, at $5 a bushel and, and make, make, uh, uh, 200 bushels to the acre. That's that's 350 acres of corn will, will get you there. That's in your experience, Kevin. That that's not a big farm, is it? I mean, that's that's that that could even include some of these. Uh, no, without question. That yeah, without question, that's not a big farm. I mean, if you want to get into that specific, I mean, this is where I always go. I mean, I think we can just go there now, and this is where I go with. Like I said, a lot of. Uh, my wife's friends are people that had, didn't grow up out in rural America. And I think it's just so important to know. So as, as technology has come on more and more into agriculture, this is what people need to understand. Just like we've seen from the energy space, technology is deflationary. So you're in this battle. I mean, TVs have gotten cheaper. We could go through the whole list. Computers are cheaper, but now we're seeing technology pour into agriculture. And technology is being exported around the world. So it's Ukraine, Russia, in the Black Sea region, into we have farms in South America. They're becoming much more efficient. They're becoming much more competitive. And as technology pours into the agriculture space, most farmers find themselves in a race for higher yields and lower prices. Yeah. We believe prices, like I said, technology is going to be deflationary. So the price of corn, beans, wheat, things, we may have blips on the radar where they have a good year because weather was bad in South America or in Russia or things of that nature. But overall, um, I, I, what, what's happened is this, to farm and be productive at farming, you now have to be accepting to the latest technology because you have to try and produce higher yields to compete with what would be lower deflationary prices. But to bring that technology on, you have to have more acres to go to scale. So that's where you're seeing your, your 100, 200 acre farm. You know, he may have to shift, uh, that family may have to shift more to specialty type crops uh, that produce smaller quantities, but are paid a bigger premium, where our other farmers are having to expand their operations and get larger because they have to be adoptive to the latest technology. And that latest technology is everything from being more agronomically correct to help with lower and reduce uh, carbon footprints. They have to lower and reduce everything from the climate change uh, programs that are coming on board. I, and I know no one who is a better steward of their ground than, the, than our farmers. Uh, they, they want to pass their soil and their farms on to their kids and their kids. And uh, we've reduced a ton of our nitrogen use and some of our fertilized uses. But what people have to understand is they have to get larger. And some of these farmers that are doing the major jobs have to get larger because they have to bring in the new technology. And to bring in the new technology, you know, when the uh, a cotton picker costs six, seven hundred thousand dollars, I mean, you have to add 
ground to justify the cost. So that's where, you know, I think it's hard for a lot of folks who aren't in the space to, to really, they don't, they only get parts and pieces of the story. And I wish they could go out and really see what uh, is, is happening out there and, and how it is. So it's, it's very interesting. Yeah. That's so perfectly said. Kevin, I actually, I come from cotton country and, and uh, you know, granddad will, will say, gosh, I, I sold, I sold cotton in the 1950s and 1920s for, prices that are comparable to what the commodity sells for today. That's a commodification of these staple crops, which is good for society at large, right? We want low cost inputs. These are kind of the building blocks of society, how we feed ourselves. And it's good to have these, these commodities at low prices across the board. We're in kind of a high season of prices right now. That's great for the farmers. Um, but generally, uh, we do have a policy that says we, we want to have uh, low a, co a low cost uh, food supply uh, for our people. I mean, they can they can pay more for fancy products if they want, but it's good to have that base level of of commodities uh, trading in free and 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 transparent and open markets. What what you did in Chicago, I'm also I'm so glad you talked about how farmers love to take care of their soil and the land. It is that a, a true kind of stewardship ethic uh, that I see. In, in the countryside, but it is, it is, you know, we, we talk about it. It's a, it's a high stakes and very thin margin game for these, for these farms these days. And that's why they have to adopt the technology and, and, and get better every year. So that, that, that's kind of the bottom line of what you're saying, right? Oh, for sure. And I think, you know, when we talk uh, with, with some of our senators, you know, and the, some of the senators and congressmen subscribed to our report and service, when we talked to them, you know, we recognize and realize the wealth gap and the wealth divide that's happened in the United States. And just as you hit on it, uh, you know, no one's impacted more by higher food costs and higher uh, inflation in food than the than the lower uh, middle class. And, you know, we have to try and produce uh, more efficient and cheaper uh, food supply. And, and to do that, you have to be open and receptive to the newest technologies. Maybe the last question here, if, if, if Kevin Van Trump were, were, were king for a day, uh, just looking at this landscape of, of U.S. agriculture, this dynamic industry that, you know, has in fact, we, you know, you mentioned the corn stats at 180 bushels per acre, by far the most productive set of farmers in the world. The technology leaders that are, that are actually paying for and providing this technology for the rest of the world, it's going to have to feed a hungry world. It's an amazing picture out there. But if, if Kevin Van Trump were, were king for a day in fashioning ag policy that's going to facilitate uh, this kind of independent, dynamic farming enterprise that, that feeds and clothes our nation, uh, from, a, from a nation's policy standpoint, where would you put your energies uh, in that, Kevin? Well, I think you have to go all the way back to the founding fathers and just make a decision. Do you want to be food independent? I think there was that that cry originally as a nation and the one thing that has separated us from all other countries is our natural resources and our ability to be food independent do we want to be a nation where we're dependent on production from russia uh we're already you know we're 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 backpedaling a little bit already we're losing market share to russia russia's become the leading exporter of wheat we're now become the ancillary supplier brazil's become the leader exporter of soybeans we're now kind of somewhat uh, an ancillary supplier there as well. So 
I believe you have to gear your programs and you have to want to support larger production agriculture as a country as a whole. Uh, are there are there certain things that uh, smaller farms and smaller farms have a viable spot in our, our country and nation? For sure. For sure. The closer to urban areas and be able to provide fresh vegetables, fresh produce, fresh, uh, uh, lots of different things direct. Uh, I love the farmer's markets that are popping up and yeah. becoming more, uh, you know, people are going more to them. And I think that's awesome. I think there's a great place for small family owned farms uh, in America. But when you talk overall policy and the betterment of our country as a whole, I mean, we have to, I think, you know, really hammer home the fact that we want to be food independent. And to make that happen, we have to be at scale and be competitive from a technological standpoint with these other nations. And, uh, and we have to be a leader. So that, that's my opinion. I think that's very well said. Kevin, tell, tell our listeners where they can find you, where they can get a hold of the Van Trump Report. Yeah, you can just go to uh, the internet. It's just the VanTrumpReport.com. You can sign up for a free trial, 30 days. We don't, I don't do any of that jazz where you ask for a credit card or anything. It's something you can use and it'll help you or your family. You know, hey, hey, you know, at the end of the trial, jump on board. If not, it's no big deal. And uh, I, I sure appreciate it. So. Well, I tell you, if anyone wants to know, uh, get a good picture of what's going on in rural America and, and, and what are the drivers uh, in our agricultural enterprise, it's a great place to, to go to. So, Kevin, really, thank you so much uh, for joining us for this important discussion about really the men and women who are working hard to, to, to keep our nation fed and clothed. I want to thank, say thanks to our listeners. We have an exciting year ahead of us and look forward to tackling some of the most pressing issues in farm policy. Let us know what you want to hear about by tweeting us at Farm Policy Facts. That's going to do it for this episode of Groundwork. I'm Tom Sill.